Hello, my fellow fallible humans. This is the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. First, I want to take a moment to thank my friend and mentor, Russell Allen Scott, for writing this beautiful piece of music for the show. It's called Greatest Bravery. Well, he didn't write it for the show. He gifted it to me to use for the show. And it's a perfect theme for this show, too. Uh, it has certainly taken great bravery to live with mental health disorders like addiction, and it took me a very long time to be willing to talk publicly about those afflictions. My name is Tanya McIntyre, and I'm here with you every week to share my experience around my own recovery from drugs and alcohol. Red Roof Recovery uses a variety of therapy tools to customize addiction recovery with evidence-based solutions, the latest scientific findings, inclusion, and non-judgment. I created Red Roof Recovery to provide not only a unique program for residential recovery, but to also develop a relapse prevention program. And these are all programs that are based on the principles of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, along with various other tools of therapy. There are hundreds of tools available to help you in your recovery from addictions and other mental health disorders. The key is to find whatever works for you. When you find something that clicks for you, you want to grab onto that and then do more of it. Assuming that it's something good for you, of course. And I've found a number of things that I continue to do on a daily basis to maintain my abstinence from harmful substances and behaviors. And something other than cognitive behavior therapy that has helped me is mentorship. I'm very fortunate to have a lot of valuable mentorship in my life, including my best friend, my life partner, my husband of over 30 years, Lance. Hello, my love. Hello, my darling. Thank you so much for being here again. I jokingly said I want you to be a regular because when you're here, I have time to have a sip of my water. So if you have listened to the last episode of Red Roof Recovery, when Lance was here with me as well, he had just made the decision to retire sooner than later. And he did that. He was working in Toronto and I was living in Godridge, Canada's prettiest town. So um, when you would leave on Monday morning to go back to the big smoke, as we call Toronto here in Canada, um, you would leave at around 11 in the morning. And I really grew to hate Mondays. And it was a horrible way to live because you were living all week in a, in a dark, dreary basement apartment, mm -hmm. being alone all week, and then going to a job you hated yep. as well. So we did a lot of cost-benefit analysis, analyses around that. Every weekend when he was home, I'd say, honey, I want to take another look at maybe the risks and rewards of retiring sooner than later. And when, uh, where are we now? We're April of 2022. You're 63. You're going to be 64 in November. And uh, so, yeah, you, you wanted to hang on until 65 to get the full pension, but we did a cost-benefit analysis around what that looked like. What was it costing you in mental health? And of course, your mental health is directly linked to your physical health. If one is not going well, the other one is going to be affected. In fact, I think we should stop distinguishing between the two because <laughs> they are directly connected. And, you know, of course, everybody is fearful around financial insecurities. And that's where you got stuck on the cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, that was my, my biggest fear. I really wanted to retire. Um, I, as you say, I didn't like the corporate life. I didn't like living by myself all week and coming home and rushing around the weekend and leaving again. Um, you say sit in a basement, I sat in a basement while working. I hardly ever saw the sunlight. 
it just wasn't but the fact that you know we've started over a couple of times in our married life and when you're younger it's it's no problem but when you're heading towards retirement age it's a it's a bit more uh, scary so yeah the cost benefit analysis was always the financial but then there were a couple of uh, episodes where I thought that little light at the end of the tunnel has now become like a flashlight and then one of my friends passed away who was actually the same age as you, a few years younger than me and I thought and that skewed the cost benefit analysis into well if I don't do it now I maybe never get to do it mm. but there was still the financial fear absolutely so let's talk about that fear there's an acronym for fear false evidence appearing real and as you said we have started over several times we were wiped out twice we've lived through two recessions we first got married in 91 but that was the recession of the 90s and then again in 2008 <clears throat> So we have rebounded from that, not uh, certainly not fully. Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, my philosopher dad, who I talk about and wrote a book, two books now in his honor, he always used to say that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer it gets to the end, the faster it goes. And, you know, now that I've reached my 60s, I love this time of life. It's fantastic. However, when I reflect on the last 20 years, it's like a blink of an eye. It's it, that scares the bejeebers out of me in many ways because life expectancy now for women is only early 80s. So, you know, I've got maybe 20 years, hopefully, left. Well, if that's the case, you're outliving me. Before, before <laughs> I shuffle off the mortal coil. So that you're right. That does bring everything into perspective um, in in good ways and bad ways. That the little pinhole when you're looking down that tunnel mm -hmm. of life has now become a spotlight. <clears throat> yeah, but during that cost benefit analysis, which is very useful because it makes you think in a positive way, because you're writing everything down, you can actually see it. You can actually, you know, and it's there physically, and you can look, and you can ruminate on it but part of that fear of the the financial side of it for me was that your father and my my mother and father got to a certain age and they run out of money and to see people who are unable to generate an income at a certain age run out of money is I mean it, that's what stuck in my mind and that was part of that cost-benefit analysis and trying to put the whole thing off. Mm. So you are, um, you know, you've spent decades with someone who is challenged with substance use disorder. I struggled with uh, drug and alcohol addictions for most of our marriage. And you being the uh, friends and family of someone who is challenged by substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, we used to call people alcoholics and addicts and druggies and junkies. We don't do that anymore because we like to be politically correct in our language, thankfully. Uh, that's one of the things I've disliked about 12-step programs is that we were encouraged to label ourselves alcoholic addict. 
Um, I still love going to AA meetings. Some are great, some are not so great. So find a meeting that works for you because there's there's more they're more plentiful for one thing, and uh, the peer support is exemplary. I find if you find the right meeting, I have lifelong friends uh, from the uh, nearly 14 years I think I've been going now, and. When I got involved with SMART, self-management and recovery training out of Mentor, Ohio, I was looking to bring a more secular program to my community because I was going to a lot of funerals. Uh, people who were relapsing in 12-step programs were not coming back. And I was a chronic relapser in uh, the, the several years that I was spending in 12-step programs. And I, I knew it was just going to be a matter of time before I didn't come back. And you lived through that with me. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of my friends and peers uh, have lost their family members because of their addictions. So what was that like for you, um, talking about financial insecurity? Um, you know, I, I tried to hide as much of the financial stuff that was going on to feed my addictions, but um, how, how did that affect you? It, I never really worried about it that much when I was working, because being self-employed for most of the time, I just work more hours if there was less money in the bank. So I never really worried about the money side of it. Um, it wasn't until Spain when you basically um, stopped trying to hide it. Mm. So we should uh, just fill people in if this if you're just listening now um, Lance and I had an opportunity to move to Spain in 2004 uh, to work with your family who was in the yacht refurbishing industry in Mallorca Spain uh, the second largest Balearic island the largest the largest oh there you go I'd still geography is still challenging for me so everyone thought oh my gosh you're going to live on the Mediterranean how romantic but uh, you know what? you still take your problems with you. Geography doesn't solve problems. And when I arrived in Spain uh, to find that my two favorite things, wine and brandy, were cheaper than water. <laughs> Not a good place for me to be. Uh, but what was helpful around that is that it helped me spiral downward very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, then you made the phone calls and went into rehab and I, I thought, this is great. Because even though you were hiding it quite well, I could see, even with the hiding, I could see a progressive spiral downwards. And I always remember when you went away for the month and I went to Seville to pick you up and you came out, I, I literally thought, I've got my wife back. And it was great. And then, as you put it, there was a series of relapses. Mm-hmm before you say I found smart. Right. So I'm not sure I would have had the wherewithal to stay with someone. If I if the if the roles were reversed, not sure I would have persevered. Well, you can't say that. I know. Because you but, don't know. But that's why I admire you so much that you you hung in there with me. I don't know well, if I could have as done you that. as you well know, you know, I mean if you love someone, you're always trying to help. And it wasn't till about six years ago, I think where you were having your last relapse and I, I tried and tried and tried and I realized that there was nothing I could do and I encouraged you to give up because I didn't know if I could do it anymore 
very hard to see someone uh, slowly killing themselves. So that's the one thing I uh, I took from that is the learning experiences to anyone there out there that is living some with someone who's challenged is that you got to look after yourself because if you're not good you can't when the person who's going through what they're going through needs help you have to be able to give it and if you're embroiled in that that whole mess you're not able to so stepping away from and looking after yourself and just being there for support when the person comes to the realization hopefully that this is going to kill them in the end i'm so passionate about this topic because it's touched us in very intimate ways and it's touching a lot of families uh, especially now during uh, this two-year pandemic uh, Suicide rates, addiction rates have tripled. Um, lots of overdoses happening. And I am creating a family and friends. I'm, I'm lucky that I found a, a physical place to have in-person meetings with self-management and recovery training for family and friends. And I'm so passionate ar around this is because um, there, they, there can be miracles happen in families when family and friends get the support that they need to get them through the challenges of dealing with someone suffering with addictions. And uh, I've seen it firsthand from a family. So I know that it, it can bring miracles to families for the family and friends to reach out and get the support. Because as you said, there was nothing you could do to help me. And, and the airplane analogy comes into play there. Very much so, yeah. And it, it's not selfish. It is self-care when you're traveling in that metal tube and the cabin pressure changes during the flight. And if the oxygen mask falls down from the ceiling, we are instructed that the mask has to go on yourself first before you can save anybody else. And that's the message with family and friends meetings from self-management and recovery training is that you need to put the mask on yourself first. You need to help yourself first. And a lot of people have... A difficult time doing that. It's, it's extremely difficult. I mean, when we did the friends and family pre-COVID um, and we had people come in and the first question is like, I'm doing something wrong. I can't help this person. It's all about the person without the problem trying to sort out the problem for the person with the problem. And you can't do it. And that's what people have to realise. I mean, I think everyone in the situation that I found myself in uh, would do the same thing. You you beat yourself up. Like, you know, you ask, why is this person doing this? Am I not treating them right? Am I not loving them enough? Why can't I help? These are all questions that you ask yourself. And you have to come to the realisation that you don't have a problem. Your partner, your friend, your loved one, they have the problem. And the only thing you can do is be a comfy place.
place to, for them to fall when they need help. So what and was look that, after yourself. Yeah, what was that catalyst? What, what, what invoked that change for you? It was when we were in Rotan. And uh, you'd had a little bit to drink. And uh, I think it's been pointed out a few times that when you were drinking, you had quite a sharp tongue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was walking, you'd gone back to the room, and I was walking down to uh, down to the seafront with a couple of your sister's old acquaintances that knew you from when years before. And they'd seen you sober and thought you were great. And then they said to me, there's the time you will remember. And yeah, yeah, I'd lived with that time a few times. We often talk in recovery circles about um, the dopamine reward axes and how different uh, drugs, substances uh, kind of peak those levels of dopamine more than others. And things like pot and alcohol, um, you know, that can get you up in the range of the high hundreds, whereas normally we range with uh, between 40 and 100. I think it's deciliters, nanograms per deciliter or something. So that that whole dopamine reward axis is, I think, paramount in uh, recovery when realizing that um, how our, how we change when we're spiking those dopamine, like when you say that my my whole demeanor changed, I didn't recognize it. Uh, you know, I was feeding myself drugs and alcohol to self-medicate uh, anxiety, depression, other deep emotions that I wasn't prepared to deal with, other than just trying to make them go away with drugs and alcohol, not deal with them. Um, not fully understanding how that dopamine reward axis and accepting, because I had been indoctrinated with 12-step programs in my recovery. So the self-flagellation, the shame-based recovery was, was really big. Um, and the labeling, you know, calling myself an alcoholic, an addict, made me feel even more shameful and guilty about what I had done to you, uh, watching your pain throughout my addiction as well. So I think what started um, me on a sustainable recovery was learning about addiction, understanding addiction, why I was addicted. Uh, I was told most of my life that I would follow in the footsteps of my mother and father who were what we called chronic alcoholics in the day back in the 60s and 70s. And I believed that, uh, you know, we believed that we were genetically predisposed to addiction if we came from a family who were challenged by addictions. And Dr. Gabor Mate, the famous Canadian doctor, says that's uh, not true. About 10% of your genetics may influence uh, your uh, predisposition to addictions, but it's all about circumstances and environment and socioeconomic conditions. There must as well. be some learned and behavior. Trauma. There must be some learned behavior as well. If you come from a family where drinking to excess is the norm. I know, I mean, England is a pub culture. Oh, yeah. So you mm-hmm. get the, the families that spend all the time in a pub. You know, as soon as they open, 
you know, the the mum and dad are down there, and when the kids are old enough, they're down there, and they spend all night, and they stagger out, and they go home. And then you get the other families that, you know, dad drops in for a pint with a couple of buddies on the way home from work. They may, mum and dad might go out once a week. And the people whose life centres around, whose mum and dad's life centred around the pub, and they were down there all the time, that's what the kids learn. So when they got old enough, down to the pub you went and stayed there all night. That was a learned behaviour. That was the norm. This is what you did. You got to, supposed to be 18, but most kids started being able to get in pubs 16, 17. There was very little, you know, asking, especially if your mum and dad were in there. So there was early starts for a lot of people and it became the norm. Not so much now, it's more like over here where people tend to drink at home because it's so expensive. But then it just gets hidden. Right. The norm becomes sitting, they have, they don't have basements over there, but sitting in the living room watching TV, like sucking back beers all the time, or whatever your, your preference is. And that becomes a norm because that's what mum and dad do mm -hmm. every night, and that's what the kids learn. And but you grew up in that environment. You're my not. parents didn't do it. My mum didn't drink. Mm. I think she said she tried it once and didn't like it, and that was it. She never drank. And my dad, he, he used to go down a pub, and he'd have a few, maybe four or five times a week. And there was a period uh, when he was in his late 40s, early 50s, where my mother had to say to him, you better stop doing this because he was spending more and more time. But when we were growing up, it wasn't... Mum was always at home and Dad came home at a very reasonable time in the evening after one or two beers. So we weren't indoctrinated into that whole, you know, life is the pub culture. But yet you have two brothers who are challenged with substance use disorders and one brother is more, I think, um, circumstantial. And he's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the next brother to me, he, uh, he's been challenged since he was very young. Um, he got on with a bad crowd. He never got on with my parents for whatever reason. I never sorted that one out. And uh, and a suspected trauma with abuse. There, there is suspected abuse trauma. And that's what Dr. Gabor Mante says, that um, in the 12 years that he was working in Vancouver's east side, which is reputed to be the most chronically addicted population in North America, and he worked with that population for 12 years and said the commonality is trauma with addictions. Yeah, and you could say with my other brother as well. I mean, there, there were, he was, essentially, he was a millionaire. When we arrived in 2007, and by the time we left at 2011, he'd lost everything. And thankfully has found a, a job, you know, that utilizes his skills, but as you all know, he was he was uh, an Amazon driver from being a millionaire to being a six-year-old guy who hadn't physically worked for 25 years to be an Amazon driver running around and, as he put it, thinking, Delivering 130 parcels a day. Yeah, and thinking <laughs> to himself, what happened to my life? Right. You know, so, yeah, there are different types of trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be physical. There can be mental trauma. 
getting divorced. I went through a very bad period when I got divorced from my ex-wife. And it, it was vanity that shook me. I'd spent 10 years bodybuilding. And when I got divorced, I spent all the time down a pub. I took the money I, from work as redundancy. And I woke up one morning, three months later, and that body that I spent 10 years trying to perfect was totally shot. And I thought to myself, what am I doing to myself? So I quite easily could have staggered down that path. But I was too vain. Mm. Good thing. So I started to talk about the dopamine reward axes and uh, didn't finish the thought, which happens to me a lot. Uh, so when we talk about people who are into the heavier stuff, like heroin and uh, meth, uh, then you get your dopamine levels spiking over 1,000, like 11, 1,200, where we're normally, our normal levels are between 40 and 100 uh, nanograms per deciliter. So when you start spiking up with the heavier drugs like meth and heroin to 1,200 nanograms per deciliter, and suddenly you've got that drop when, the, when you lose the drug and that boost, that's when you start getting into primal actions like stealing from your grandma, right? We've heard those stories of family members stealing. And that's because we go into primal action when those dopamine levels crash, uh, which is why I think online or ongoing uh, support programs with medically assisted treatment is so paramount in recovery, which is seems to be lagging in a lot of places. So I think the more we learn about addiction, um, the better off our communities will be, absolutely. So thank you for persevering with me, Lancelot, through my drug and alcohol addictions. It, uh, yeah, it's been worth it. Yeah, hanging in. And it's the biggest challenge for family members. So I'm thrilled to have a smart self-management and recovery training, family and friends, in-person meeting every Sunday from 12 to 1 o'clock at the St. Vincent de Paul thrift shop in Canada's prettiest town of Goderich, Ontario. So you can find meetings near you on the Smart Recovery website, smartrecovery.org, and I highly recommend you do that. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. Uh, you are an integral part of my recovery path, and it means everything that you hang out with me for 30 minutes a week. Thank you. If you think that you or someone you know might be a good candidate for my unique residential recovery program, please reach out to me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, I'd love to hear from you as well. I've written a couple of books, both available on Amazon.ca and also at Finchers in the Square in Goddard, Ontario. Mindful wisdom from my philosopher dad, sage advice from a single father in honor of my father who brought me up as a single dad in the 60s and 70s while struggling with his own addictions. He was a fabulous man and deserves a legacy of greatness. My second book is called Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad. I wrote this one uh, when we were first in the pandemic to maintain my own sanity and this is more of a daily journal. I've set this up with inspirational messages every day that came from my philosopher dad, along with a lot of other wisdom, uh, my own life experiences as well, and some timeless wisdom that has been passed to me from countless mentors in my life. 
So my hope is that you not only buy my books, but you also take a few minutes on this daily wisdom from my Philosopher Dad book, some inspiration to guide your days. Because when you take some time to reflect on these inspirational messages, and then write your thoughts and intentions for the day, there is something magical that happens. I mean, the power of words is very powerful. The power of the written word is miraculous and can be life transformational. At least it has been for me. Remember, there is great power in knowing that the only thing we can control in our lives is ourselves. And uh, it's worth the effort to do the work. Um, Louise Hayes Mirror exercise is still part of my daily ritual. Learning to love myself has also been an integral part of my recovery journey. Remember to talk to yourself like you talk to your best friend. I love you. You're worth it. May the force be with you. And remember, you, you, yes, you, you are the force. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>